Greetings and salutations. Um, so here we go. We're at uh, we're at the end here. Um, so um, it's always hard for me at this class because I'm like we're right at time for a lot of you to enter the church. Um, and there's you know, so much we haven't covered, which again, I blame you. Um, those, I didn't make a copy for everybody, but we might, we have a little bit of lighter crowd tonight. If you want one, so what Stephanie has over there is a argument against abortion. And if, depending on where class goes tonight, we might talk about that, we'll see. But it's a very logical, step-by-step -step argument that shows that you just, there's no reason to be someone who... You should not be a person who is pro-choice. just doesn't make any rational sense. Not a religious argument, just a very rational argument. Um, so we had our confession retreat on Saturday. I think that went great. Hopefully when everyone... Did, does anybody want to say anything about... Every, there's kind of a powerful moment to share something. If any, You don't have to, but if anybody wants to say... Anything about the confession retreat? Nigel needs to go again. Nigel needs to go again. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> it was awesome. It was awesome. Okay. Thank you. It was cleansing. It's cleansing, right? Was it as scary as you imagined? Worse. <laughs> I love it. Okay. My, my smart watch registered high stress for the like two hours. Your smart watch registered high stress. That's funny. That is funny. Okay. Any so Easter vigil is Saturday night. So let's review this just briefly. So. Um, tomorrow night is Holy Thursday, so we have the Mass of the Lord's Supper. On Holy Thursday, we celebrate two sacraments Jesus instituted. So we have, which two are they? Eucharist and priesthood. So those are celebrated on Holy Thursday. So we'll have, we have Mass in the church tomorrow night at 7 p.m. I hope you can all come. Um, super powerful. It'll be a beautiful liturgy. Um, we reenact Jesus washing the feet of the 12 disciples, 12 apostles. Um, so that's tomorrow night at 7. Friday we have 3 p.m. is the Good Friday service. It's not a mass, but Good Friday at 3 p.m. Why 3 p.m.? Does anybody know? Exactly. That's the hour when he died. Um, it's the hour we sometimes we, re, we refer to it as the hour of divine mercy because St. Faustina Kowalska, who Jesus entrusted uh, last century to, the, to spread the message of his mercy. Um, and then Holy Saturday, we have Mrs. Thursday. Saturday, so if you're coming into the church on the, at the Easter Vigil, Saturday we have a 9 a.m. practice. Shouldn't go too long. 
Um, we'll walk through the basics of what's going to happen. Um, and then the Easter Vigil happens at 8 p.m. We're asking you 7.30, right? Yeah, no later. I'll be here right Saturday. So, and I told Steph this. So usually we'll say more like 7.15. Not because you need to be there by 7.15, because you really don't. But because we actually hope you show up by 7.30. So, you know what will happen. You'll be nervous. There'll be too much going on. You're just like me. And so try to just plan for that um, and try to get there on time. If you are being baptized, remember, you need a change of clothes. So if you have not been baptized, you should wear something that is not white when you show up. And then you should bring something that is white to change into. Someone asked last week, I loved it. You do not have to wear white pants. But if you have a white shirt or if you're if one of the ladies, you have a white dress, something like that is appropriate. Um, fasting, holy or holy Good Friday is a day of fasting. So Christ, remember all the sacraments. What happens is that Jesus didn't just die for us, but his life, death, and resurrection are patterns and mysteries that Jesus draws us into. And so on Good Friday, we fast. Um, the rule in the church about this is super weak. And if you want to be weak, you can just follow that rule. I'm just kidding. It is a little weak, in my personal opinion. What the, what the rule in the church is, is you can have one full meal, and then you can have two other meals, but in such a way that the other two don't add up to another full meal. Um, I bet the way you feel is the same way I feel. Every year people come to me, every year, and like, Father Brian, I'm not good at fasting. And I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> None of it, guess what? I like food, right? No one likes fasting, that's the point. And, and the point is that, do you love Jesus enough to say, Lord, I'm not good at this, but I want to enter because you're suffering, right? If someone you love was suffering, it's weird to be like, I'm sorry you're having such a bad day. I'm going to the spa. Call me later. You know, that would be weird. If someone you really loved is suffering, you want to enter into it with them. So some people, so I will tell you, I am not good at fasting. Not good at it. I am a weak priest. What some people do, the really hardcore people, but I want to just really want to emphasize this. Holiness is not the same thing as being hardcore. Holiness is not the same as being hardcore. Holiness is not the same thing as being hardcore. Not the same thing. Some people, what they do, though, is they'll fast from the end of this Mass until the Easter Vigil. So Thursday night, they'll have dinner before, sometime before the Mass and the Lord's Supper, when Jesus is arrested afterwards and goes to his Passion, and they'll fast all the way through Friday, all the way through Saturday, until the end of Saturday night. I have never once done that, and I don't think it's likely that I will. Some people do, and if you feel called to do that, that's beautiful. But you also, there's not a necessity around that. If you do that, I would encourage you the Easter Vigil is going to be three, three and a half hours. 
we don't want you to faint. And I'm, I actually really mean that. Um, so I would actually encourage you, it's good to have something in your system prior to the Easter Vigil. What I do on Good Friday is the same thing I do every single year. Days of, on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, I do the same thing every year. You do not have to do it the way I do it, but here's how I do it. I fast all day on Good Friday until dinner. And then at dinner, I make a simple dinner. You're not allowed to eat meat on Good Friday. Um, so I'll make a simple pasta after the, the liturgy, the 3, 8, 3 p.m. And since I'm the pastor, you know, I end up eating usually about, I don't know, 7.30 or 8 o'clock, something like that. Questions about logistics around the triduum? Yeah. Drinking on Good Friday is not a thing? Um, there's no official rule about drinking on Good Friday, but it would seem to go against the spirit of it, yeah. you know? Anybody else? Yeah. love that you asked that. Good. And I, I'm not being facetious. I really mean that. I love that you asked that. Um, so Jesus, right? And I want to say that's Matthew's gospel. Let's see what's. Yeah, it's So Matthew 26, 46. So in Matthew's Gospel, the end of Jesus' life, um, you know what happens to me every year? And can I just encourage all of you, I love it when you ask questions, because what my insecurity is, you might have an insecurity where you're like, that's a dumb question. You know what my insecurity is? Is you have all heard all of this before, and you're bored. And that's, that's I'm not kidding, that's my insecurity. Um, so when I learned this in college, I was like, this... It's so incredible. So, you know, in Matthew's Gospel, we're reading chapter uh, 26, verse 45. It says, now, from the sixth hour, what's the sixth hour? Does anybody know? Three o'clock. No, no, three is not. No, it's not. I would give it away if I answered why. It's noon. It's noon. So, so Jews count from 6 a.m. in Jesus' time. And so... <clears throat> The sixth hour is noon. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so there's two answers to this, Michelle. Um, I don't know which one to start with. <clears throat> but let me start with the wrong answer, actually. So a third one. The wrong answer, and some Christians have thought this in history, is that Jesus takes on our sins, and so the Father literally can't look at him because Jesus is in some sense so sinful that the Father can't endure his presence. That's the wrong answer. It's not, that's not true. Um, the reason for that is because God knows all things, and Jesus didn't actually commit sin. 
the way the New Testament describes it is that Jesus became a sin offering for us. So he became a sacrifice for my sins. And that's the sense he took them on. It's not like the Father can't distinguish between those things. Okay, so that's the wrong answer. The right answer, there's two of them. So let's start with the one that I that is so cool. They're both cool, but um, can't let my beer spill. So a common thing in the ancient world in, in Judaism. So the way that we know movies is, um, or like we know movie lines, right? So if if you said to me, hey, if B. If I, if I said, hey, I'm going to host all of RCIA, we're going to watch a movie at my house, and you said, well, FB, what movie are we watching? And I'm like, um, I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Does anybody know what movie that is? Billy Madison. Billy Madison. Thank you. Someone has taste in this class. <laughs> <laughs> or if I said, um, uh, <clears throat> I wish the ring had never come to me. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, right? Or like, from my, all I know is my generation. I don't really know like modern movies so much, but um, if I said like, if I like grabbed my car door and I was like, what'd you do? Right? Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy when he like rips the car door off. Anyway, the point is we know movie lines. Um, and we can reference movies that way. So this is what Jesus is doing on the cross. So Psalm 22, or sorry, Matthew 26 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first line of Psalm 22. And so rabbis, we know this historically, the rabbis would frequently quote the first verse of a psalm. And what they would do is it was a way of invoking the whole psalm. And Psalm 22 if you read it, it will blow your mind. Um, Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the crucifixion. Um, so, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First verse. Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I'm going to skip a bunch of these things because it's a long psalm. Um, but verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in me. Sounds very, very similar to the way the Pharisees and the scribes mock Jesus on the cross. Um, jumping ahead. <clears throat> verse 16. Dogs are around about me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. All of those things happen at the crucifixion. The psalm was written at least a thousand years before the time of Christ. And here, here's the point. <clears throat> Psalm 22 is a psalm of great suffering. And so Jesus, when he quotes this on the cross, he's evoking imagery here. And here's the really cool thing. 
is the psalm ends with praise. And so the psalm, all through the psalm, whoever wrote that psalm is saying, I am suffering tremendously. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Right? I, and a company of evildoers surrounds me. But at the end of the psalm, it talks about how, but God, I trust you. Even in the hour of my darkness, I trust you. And it's this powerful moment of Jesus saying to us, even in his darkness, he still trusts the Father. I love that. The first time I learned that, I was like, mind blown. Um, here's the other, the second piece of Michelle is this, <clears throat> is that what Jesus says there is real. And so Jesus is God in his man, but in his humanity, In his human nature, Jesus, what he does is he takes the consequences of my sin on himself. So in his divinity, Jesus is perfectly united to the Father. But in his human nature, he takes on the consequences of my sin. Um, we, when we talked about, I don't know if, I talk so much I never know what I've actually said in RCI. <laughs> But Jesus, a big deal like in Hebrews 13, is that Jesus is crucified outside the city. Did we talk about this? Yeah. That was just kind of a grunt. Yeah. Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, so communion, right, means if you have sin in the Bible, you're cast out. Sin is a place of non-communion. And it's not just the Bible. This is our lives, right? If you do terrible things to your wife, she's going to say, go sleep on the couch. Right? This is what happens in our lives. Um, so Jesus, Hebrews has a big theology of this, that Jesus is the one who has perfect communion with God, and I'm the one who belongs outside. Because my sins against God and against others, the consequence of that is I don't belong inside. But Jesus is crucified outside, just like the scapegoat of Leviticus 26. He goes outside and he takes my place so that I can go inside. So similarly here, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though God the Father will never forsake Christ, ever. And he'll never forsake us. But Jesus, in his humanity, experiences the suffering that should be mine. And so all the sufferings from the hit, all of the world, and think, I mean, think about that. Like, every, like, think of the hurts you've experienced in your life that are so painful, right? right? The Lord took the consequences of all the sins of the world on himself. Incredible stuff. Um, and so Jesus, and one of the things I love to talk to people about on Good Friday, usually when we think of Jesus' sufferings, we think of the physical. That says physical. I'm just kidding. Like, <laughs> I'm not really, don't say that. But anyway, in our lives, right, like we think of Jesus' sufferings just as the physical. Now, crucifixion is 
awful. It is, it is designed by the Romans to be absolutely torturous and humiliating on every single level. But I think the greatest suffering that Jesus experienced was not physical. It was emotional and spiritual. The greatest pains in our life, and I bet, I don't know all of you, but I would guess this, the greatest pains in our life don't tend to be physical, as, as awful as those can be. The greatest sufferings in our life are when someone we love has hurt us. Those are the greatest sufferings. And the closer the relationship is, the more it hurts. Right? If the closer you've been, this, like if I always say, you know, if I get nasty emails, which I get, not too often because people are too good to me, Lords. But when people will send me nasty emails, it kind of hurts, but I'm kind of like, whatever, loser. <laughs> like, I don't know you, right? But if someone who I love, if someone who I love hurts me, it destroys me, right? So the closest relationship that has ever existed is the relationship between the Father and the Son. I knew you were going to get me emotionally at some point. Um, <clears throat> that there has never been a closer relationship than the Father and the Son. Never. The Trinitarian relationship is the closest, deepest, most beautiful thing that has ever existed. Or ever will exist. So think about the way Jesus loves you. <laughs> Sorry. In his humanity, he chooses to bear the consequence of your separation from God. And I think that's what Jesus' cry on the cross is. The, the greatest sufferings in human life, as awful, right, as we can think of some terrible things that have happened physically in history, but I, I'm convinced that the, <clears throat> the greatest sufferings tend to be spiritual, emotional, psychological. And in that, these things tie together. So Jesus undergoes that. He experiences in his humanity complete darkness and separation from the Father. But Psalm 22 will show you that he still trusts. But the people that were there, I would, I mean, I think the Romans would interpret it that way. Okay. And I, but I think both of these hold together. And the, the reason I would say, Michelle, that I, I actually think a lot of the Jews actually would interpret it this way, they wouldn't yet understand the father-son theology. But <clears throat> rabbis, this is a common practice in first century Israel. Just, just the way that, that we quote movie lines, they quoted scripture. Um, what's it? Does anybody have a better movie line? May the force be with you. Thank you. <laughs> may the force be with you. Right? Like, if I say may the force be with you, everyone knows what that means. Right? Everyone knows that. And in Israel, they, remember, they don't have media. They live with the scriptures. Even if they can't read, it's, an, it's, an, it's a country or a uh, culture 
that lives auditorily, they know the Psalms. And so they would they would know this. Yep. But I, I think his point was if I'm Jewish, I yep. know that psalm. I see it more as a case of he's saying, like to your point, it's a thousand years ago. And they're kind of like, whoa, oh, this is going on right now. This guy's quoting yep. that. Uh, this guy might be important. I probably ought to figure this out. Maybe. I mean part of this is speculation, right? Like we don't have first century Jews that we can call and be like, how do you react to this? But we do know that this is a common practice of rabbis in Israel. And when they quote the first psalm, or the first line of a psalm, it's meant to invoke the entire psalm. But I hear that, and I just, you know, invoke it, and I react. Yeah, and it would take reflection. And I would say, whoa, yeah. I know that psalm, and this is what's going on. Yep. It's an evangelical moment for yeah, and I, who knows, right? This, there is a, for sure a bit of speculation here, but I'll tell you, like, for me, like, when someone, like, I, some of us, some people are, like, music people, and some people are lyrics people. I'm a lyrics person, so I know, like, every word to every song. And so if someone quotes a line from a song that actually is tasteful, like, I know that song, right? Um, and, I, and I can tell you what that song is about, and if you're in a scene where it's like, holy crap, like Psalm 22 is about someone whose hands and feet have been pierced and who is dying an agonizing death, yet trusting God, and you're at the crucifixion, like, I, I don't know. I can't tell you what went through um, uh, Mary Magdalene's head when she heard that. And probably the Roman soldier would not have gotten that because he doesn't know Israel's scriptures. So there, there's a bit of reconstruction here. But to me, I'm like, I don't think it's that big of a stretch. And a lot of scripture scholars think the same thing. Yeah. Didn't one of the, Longinus, the Roman Longinus, Jews, yeah. came to faith at that point, didn't it? it? That's a tradition. And certainly Mark's gospel. So that's in Mark's gospel, in Mark 15. Um, it's very clear that Mark is showing you something amazing there, where someone who shouldn't get it does. And... So, so Mark certainly points something out there where he, something amazing is happening. Yeah. But wasn't like King John at the foot of the cross? So mm -hmm. Wouldn't his gospel be like the most accurate depiction? Is that, um, yeah. Did they say that the same way? Uh, John's gospel doesn't have that quote. The the <clears throat> John and there's there's different attempts to understand this. Uh, how do I say this? Like, so in the modern world, what we want is we want a photograph of Jesus. One of my, my professors used to say this, is that we want a photograph where we want the exact kind of video of exactly what are you saying when, after what. And it's not just in the modern world. Ancient scripture scholars did the same thing. Um, but uh, what my, one of my professors used to say is, do you know what a mosaic is? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you study art, oftentimes, like in the modern world, the way we do art, well, that's a, that's a thorny question. Um, but if you do like realist art, they're trying to make it look like a photograph. But in iconography, like traditional Christian icons, they're not just trying to show you what a person looked like, they're trying to tell you something 
very deep and profound that's true about that person. And some one of my professors used to say, we come with 21st century questions to a first century way of looking at things. So John's Gospel has different last words of Jesus. He quotes Psalms. But also one more thing is that John writes the last of the four Gospels. So <clears throat> Mark's Gospel is almost certainly the first to be written. And Mark's is written like, it's debated, but late 50s, let's say. Um, John's Gospel is written close to the year 100. Who knows, 90? It's hard to tell. But it's definitely later, and it's much later. And so one of the things, like, like John's Gospel, doesn't tell the Last Supper story in the same way as the other three. And traditionally, the church always understood because it was already out there. So John talks about the foot washing. And he says, you already know about the Eucharist. And he talks about it in chapter 6. So in John 19 is the cross. John's going to talk about Mary. Um, and he's going to talk about Mary at the foot of the cross. And so, in, so in, a, in a certain sense, John wants to say, look, you've seen Jesus quoting this psalm. I want to talk to you about what happened with his mother when I was there. Something like that. Yeah, no, John. The writings of the Old Testament first gathered together cohesively so that Psalm 22 would have been. Yep. So I'm going to butcher the dates here, but so the Jews don't have a Bible like we think of it. The Christians force that question. So what happens is the Pentateuch, right? My dates are going to be so bad here, this is going to be embarrassing. But Moses compiles, writes the first five books. So, and I want to say that's 4,000 years ago, so like 2,000 BC. Or is it 4,000 BC? 2,000 BC. Um, so Moses compiles the Pentateuch. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. All Jews consider that scripture in the time of Christ. So every group in the New, in the New Testament, they all 100% are like, this is the word of God. So they call that, this is the law. And there's three categories that the Old Testament has of, of its books. You have the law, the prophets, And so the prophets, right, you have um, Moses in some sense is considered a prophet, but they, don't, they call him the law. Um, so really the, the prophets really begin with Samuel. And so Samuel, right, like what, 1000 BC, um, and going all the way up until Malachi, the last of the prophets. And so really almost to the time of Christ. And then the third category is the writings, which is basically everything else. Um, so the, when in a Jewish way of understanding it, these are the three categories. And we might talk about this tonight. Jesus references all three in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. And he talks about how the scriptures, everything written about me, and the law, the prophets, and the writings. Um, 
Those are the three categories. Now, the writings contain things like the Psalms and the wisdom literature. They contain history pieces, things like Joshua, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so when did this happen? Different points in time. The, the Psalms are predominantly written by David, but there's a lot of Psalms that are later than King David, but the Psalms are the hymn book of Israel. And so it's, it's just a little messy. I wish I had a better answer than this. It's a little, mis uh, a little messy. The Psalms are the hymns of Israel. But by the time you get to the time of Jesus, and this is when we talked about scripture and tradition, what happens is in the like third second and third century BC, um, so like let's say the second century BC, you get what's called the Septuagint. So the Septuagint, what that is, is it's the Greek Old Testament. So what happened is, by that time in history, very few Jews speak Hebrew anymore. Almost no one speaks Hebrew. And so in Alexandria and Egypt, a bunch of rabbis, you'll, you'll see it referred to as this, the LXX. The Septuagint means 70. And the legend is kind of a legend is that 70 rabbis translated it from Hebrew into Greek. This is the Bible of Jesus. It is the Bible of Paul. Um, we know for a fact in the New Testament, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, something like 97% of quotations are from the Septuagint. And this is a canonical question. I'm sorry, this is probably way more than you bargained for. <laughs> Welcome to our CIA. Um, that this book, the Septuagint, that is the Catholic Old Testament. So every book that a Catholic Bible has in the Old Testament is in the Septuagint. So it's something like that. Way too much. Okay, we should keep moving because it's our last night before the vigil. Okay. Do you guys, here's your quick question. Do you want to do, we've two, a fork in the road. Do you want to do, walk through the road to Emmaus really quickly and talk about that, which is the resurrection story from Luke 24, or do you want to keep going with more moral issues? Those are your two options. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you to raise your hands. Okay, <laughs> so how many people say Luke 24? This is gonna be a little close. How many people say uh, moral issues? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Maybe a little more on the moral side. Why do you want to do all of that? I choose all. What if you do like a couple moral and just hit the last 10 minutes trying to get summary of the resume? Perfect. Okay. Because <laughs> okay. I think both are important before. They are. Okay, okay so let's hit a, a few moral issues. So, um, so last time, what we talked about, um, we talked about, right, Nietzsche and Aristotle. Nietzsche, one of the hardest names to spell in history, and Aristotle. What's the big difference between those two? Relative versus absolute morality. Discovered, okay. Discovered and 
Discover and invent, right? Yeah, both of those are true. I like the language of discover and invent. Um, so, so for Aristotle, right, the way we live in the world is based on how the world is. You don't get to invent morality, you discover it. For Nietzsche, it's all BS. And whenever someone says this is how the world is, they're just trying to impose their will on you. Um, and if you understand that, you understand a lot of the modern world. So let's do this really quick. Brief history that is way oversimplified and take with a grain of salt. Brief history of the last 60 years in the United States. Here's why. <clears throat> so much of my life, um, I was talking to Alicia a little bit about this today. So much of my life is spent trying to convince people that the Catholicism they have encountered is not the real Catholicism. And I feel like that is one of the missions of my life, is like most Catholics, their experience in the Catholic Church is a bunch of Catholics who don't know what they're talking about, where the music's, uh, well, let's say the preaching's bad, the music is worse, and people seem rigid and judgmental and uptight. So, quick history. So what happened in the Catholic Church, again, way over simplification, we'll do it through my family. So my grandparents on my mom's side, if you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, right, this is my family, except not Greek, Irish. Um, so my big fat Irish priesthood, right? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, that's my story. So what happened is Grandma Jane and Grandpa Joe, um, so my grandparents, And I will tell you, I've given this talk like 50 times, and every time I've given it, when there are Catholics in the room, everyone in the room is like, that's my family. This is exactly my story. So I, here's what happened in the United States. I don't know outside of the US, but in the US, this is pretty true. My grandparents were super devout. They would never miss a Sunday mass if their life depended on it. People from my grandparents' generation if they have, like if you were at the confession retreat, you heard this, if they had open heart surgery and almost died, but they missed mass on a Sunday because of it, they would go to confession immediately and confess that they missed mass. Um, so they were very devout. My grandparents, not everybody was this way, my grandparents were dirt poor. They had 10 kids, my mom was the oldest of 10. Um, Grandma Jane and Grandpa Joe, loved their faith. They observed it strictly to the letter of the law. But they could never explain to you why they did the things they did. So, that generation, um, what they would say is that, you know, if you said, um, hey, mom, why do we have to go to church on Sunday? How do you think they would answer? Right? Yeah. Because I said so, get your butt in the car, mm -hmm. right? That's how they answered. They weren't wrong, but they didn't know why. And that was very widespread. So kind of following World War II, that was a common experience of Catholics in the United States. So then what happens is my mom is the oldest of 10. She's probably watching right now, so it's always kind of fun. Um, so I don't know that this happened in my mom's family, um, but 
I don't know if this question ever came up, but it certainly comes up today, and I, I, I think this is fair. So my mom's old is a 10. So what happens in this kind of generation, broadly speaking, think about the, the 60s and the 70s and 80s. What happens is you have the sexual revolution, you have women's rights, you have the civil rights movement, you get Vietnam, you have Watergate, You know, some of those things aren't earth-shattering. This one is. We're going to get to that. What happens is, my mom's old as a 10. Um, and if you can imagine, one of my aunts or uncles goes to Grandma Jane or Grandpa Joe and says, Hey, I'm moving in with my girlfriend. Or let's put it a different way. If, if, let's say one of my uncles goes to Grandpa Joe or Grandma Jean and says, why can't I sleep with my girlfriend? They're going to have the answer that says, because I said so, or we just don't do that because it's wrong. But they generally didn't have a great answer as to why. They just said, you don't do this. Now, when the world goes crazy and everyone is doing these things, and if you look for an answer long enough, right? If you go to Grandma Jane long enough and you say, why can't I sleep with my girlfriend? And everybody else is doing it, and your parents keep saying, well, because I said so, and just, we just don't do that. What you start to think is maybe, maybe the reason you can't find an answer is because there is no answer. So what happened in my mom's family is I don't... I have to think about the numbers, but something like six of the ten no longer practice. When I give this talk to parents, every single person in the room is like, you just described my family. And so what happened in the, in the history of the church was that my parents' generation, by and large, they all left the church. And a lot of people, by the way, are going to blame that on Vatican II. So Vatican II happens between 1962 and 1966. That's a really bad answer. Vatican II is a gift of God. It's a wonderful thing. It's amazing. There was a lot going on. Um, so what happens, by and large, people leave. Um, what's happening today is the church is awakening. And so now we'll get to, the, we'll get to where, we, where we left off last class. So what happened, I think, with, with my aunts and uncles and with a lot of people in that generation is everyone's sleeping with everyone. There's the drug culture. There's the free love culture. Everything, and the old kind of religious culture just seemed restrictive and judgmental and narrow. And they couldn't give good answers and so people in my generation, we grew up where our parents weren't going to church. And so for most people, religion just wasn't even a thought. Why would you even go to church? For some of us, like me, I got lucky, and I think the grace of God, we encountered people who actually 
had answers that my grandparents didn't. Lords is a place like that. Lords is a place where people, when they ask questions, are going to find answers. And when, what happened in my life, the reason that I am, became a priest eventually, was I started asking hard questions, which I thought there's no answer. And I was like, freaked out as a college because I was like, holy crap, that makes a lot of sense. And I'd actually rather not be chased, and I'd rather not have to go to church on Sundays, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, so, back to last class, we talked about this briefly. So most of the, the big controversial issues in the modern world center around sexuality, right? Obviously. So what the church believes is that you have to discover morality. You don't invent it, you discover it. This is not the Bible said so type of morality. This is, this is written into the way things are, right? You can try to make a plan to grow in a dark closet all you want, it's not going to work. So the church around sexuality, right? So many of these things is about the, are about sexuality. So there's two meanings to the sexual act that the Catholic Church believes. You don't have to be a Christian to think this. To me, it's just painfully obvious. It's just it's as obvious as you want a plant to grow, you give it sunlight, you give it water and soil. This is the way sex works. So what are the two meanings of sexuality? Yeah. The, we call them the unitive and the procreative. So, what, like we talked about last time, contraception, if you understand that, you'll understand the rest. Um, so what contraception does, not just the oral contraceptive pill, but all forms of contraception, what they seek to do is control this aspect. Right? They, they, we want to control it. And I always love this class because I always joke that everybody looks at me like, what are you talking about? Come on. You know what I'm talking about, right? We all, we all want to control that. So everyone said this, this would be great. The handout I gave you tonight, it's a little dated, it's from 2017. Um, this, this is the author that wrote that book, Cheap Sex, that I told you that I like to read in coffee shops, right? <laughs> in my collar, it looks funny. Um, so he's a real deal researcher. This is, that book is published through Oxford University Press. This is not, you know, fluff fringe stuff. This is real. Um, that's just a teaser for you. It's an op-ed he wrote for the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's worth reading. Um, so what everybody said is that at this time, if we, got, if we have contraceptives, everything's going to be better. Marriages will be healthier. Abortion rates will go down. Right? We'll have less abusive families, all these kinds of things. What all data suggests is the opposite happened. And the reason this happened is because when you tell men that women can be sexual objects and you do not have to man up, and be a man and marry a woman to have a sexual relationship with her, bad things will happen in our culture. <clears throat> yeah? 
So it's been reading a lot about psychology sort of views about, about this, and they take a you know the, the secular view in agreement, which is basically that when you add specific specifically to pill other um, contraceptions, it eliminates risk. The woman woman generally carries the, the lion's share of risk. Yep. The man leaves, she's got to carry the stage, she's got to bring it to term, and she's got to be the one to care for it. So it's sort of this very cooperative dance that the two had prior to that, where women, because they carried all the risk, they were extremely selective. They demanded upon men to marry them, must yep. be the provider. And the man, too, Peterson talks about this, and that eventually men, when they start to get older and mature, they start to realize the benefit of having a partner, the benefit of having children. There's things beyond that that are more yep. beneficial. It becomes this really nice cooperative and, and you sort of build each other up. This is really interesting if he's here to say this. All evidence is agreeing with you. Yeah, none, but no one wants to hear it. So there's a ton of books out there on this, but no one wants to hear it because they don't want to hear it. Because they'd rather just live like we want to live. And so what happens, that the, this is a major oversimplification, and I know this, but you know how class goes. So basically what happens is men, they say, oh, I can like every woman is available? Because all the stats show, basically every woman in our culture is sexually available. So what that means is I don't have to grow up. So I can play video games, and I can just kind of remain a teenager, and I don't have to man up and sacrifice my life to provide for a wife and a family. And women are like, every woman's available. Women tend not to want to have sex as soon as men. Not universally, but tendency is that way. But women feel a pressure of, if I don't, I'll never land a guy. Ladies, this plays massively against you because what happens is that women are more prone, all the studies show this, they're more prone to look for more mature men. Men are, we are more superficial on some issues at least. Men tend to be more physically and visually driven. Again, not universally, broad statements, right, caveats. But men tend to be looking for younger and younger women. And so the way this ends up is that women are at a huge disadvantage. Um, okay, but anyway, here's the issue. We separated these two. And if you understand this, what we think as Christians, and again, you don't have to be a Christian. If you're just an Aristotelian, if you actually think that the way you behave isn't up to you, but it's actually you have to obey what the, how the world is. You have to listen to the way of the nature of things. You can try and kick a rock all you want. It's going to hurt. Um, what we think as Aristotelians or people who believe that the world has consequences is that when you separate these two, there are consequences. So if you understand this, you'll understand why the Catholic Church is against gay marriage. Not that we're against the people, right? And hear this, this is massively important. The Catholic Church does not believe people who have same-sex attraction are sinners. We don't think that. And anyone who thinks that, you should very kindly take them out back and give them a piece of your money. We don't think that. That was a nice way of saying that. But what we do think is that the actions themselves are disordered. 
So if so, I have I have lots of disordered desires. All of us do, right? I have sexual desires towards women that sometimes I wish I had less of. Right? I wish that my lust wasn't there. Or like the the example I'll use sometimes is I don't know why we used to have this huge window in my house when I was a missionary, and I just always thought it would be so fun to throw a chair through it. <laughs> right? Yeah, girls are like what, and the guys are like. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like fun. It would be. I'm like, there's this huge window. I'm like, man, it's be so awesome to throw a chair through that window. Um, that's that's disordered. But there's a difference between the desire and the action. It's not my fault if I have a desire to do that. But I have free choices. So the church does not believe if someone has same-sex attraction, we do not believe that as a bad person. We do not believe that person is not going to heaven. We don't believe any of that. And anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't know a thing they're talking about. Yeah? I, I can't cite scripture, but isn't there some element in there that's like, if I think about murdering that person, it's equivalent to doing so? Um, Jesus will talk about, he says, uh, if you ever looked at a woman lustfully in the Sermon on the Mount, um, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. But the church would say, right, they're like, but insofar as you choose it, right? So, so think of it this way. Like, okay. if I have a weird thought that comes in my head, that's just a weird thought. But we all know with our thoughts, lust is an easy one. If you see an attractive woman, you can be like, oh, she's attractive. And it's a little different from, now I'm going to mentally undress her. Yeah. Okay. Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a sin. That is a sin because it's an action. But what we're saying is, like, if I have a desire, that's different from a choice. Right? It's the same thing in our culture where, like, if you've ever been so mad at someone, you feel like you could just kill someone. That's not the same thing as killing someone. Right? We, we have decisions, and our decisions are ultimately what matter. Okay. So, here's the crazy thing, is that this is undisputed. There's no one who disputes this unless they don't know what they're talking about, that until about, I think it's 2003, no one in the history of the world, no culture that we have any evidence of anywhere in the world ever thought that marriage could be between two people of the same sex. Ever. 2003 is the first time. And then it could be 2005, but it's right around there. In the Netherlands. It's the first time in all of human history. And in the Supreme Court case, Obergefell, if you haven't read that, I would encourage you to read that. Um, I read it very thoroughly when it came out, when the, same, when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in our country. Um, both sides agreed to that. They're like, yeah. And the, the pro-gay marriage kind of lobby said, um, well, that's because everyone else in history was bigoted. And we're better than that. And I'm like, that's not an argument. They didn't ask me, though. <clears throat> that's just name-calling. That's, that's not actually an argument. That's just name-calling. Here's the big thing. The Catholic Church's belief about same-sex marriage is that it's not about love. Catholic Church, is, it's not about love. It's about sex. So the, the one-liner that the LGBTQ community uses is love wins. Which is basically, it's a, it's a cop-out way of saying, if you're not on our side, you are a total a-hole. You're against love, 
you are evil. This one-liners are awful sometimes. That all that does is it destroys debate, and it basically means I don't actually want to have a conversation with you. Sort of like pro-choice. It's like sort of a trick to against women's. Choice. It's semantics. It's a one-line semantic. So here's here's the thing: is that the Catholic Church believes sex has a nature. So we don't. Of course, we believe in love. We believe that God commands us to love everyone we meet. That is a commandment of God. Love is not the same thing as sex. So there's a couple lies out here of our culture. And again, and we're going to hopefully tie this together. Um, love is not the same thing as sex. Love is not sex. Love is not sex. Love is not sex. They should go together, but they're not the same thing, though. Right? If you, lest you have any doubt... I am a celibate person. I am forbidden from having sex my entire life. I believe the most important thing in life is love. I do not believe that I am someone who has to go through my life and not love anyone. I do not believe that. I do not believe that Jesus went through his life not loving anyone. He was celibate. He did not have sex with anyone. Love is not sex. It's a couple lies. The biggest one here is you cannot be happy without sex. Has anyone ever thought that? Just me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Right. People come to me all the time. They're like, but Father Brian, I couldn't possibly live life without sex. And I'm like, yeah, you could. It's hard. It's not easy. Life isn't about sex. Sex is a good thing. Life isn't about sex. So, what the church teaches, right, our dispute is not about love. It's about what is marriage. And here's the thing. If you think that marriage is about your best friend, so people who advocate for same-sex marriage, and again, like, so I brought show and tell a couple books tonight. Um, two books on this. If, you, if you're a serious reader, as I always say, as, Pat, as Patrick always two books if you're a serious reader these are not easy reads this is the book on why um, anyone who's a serious thinker should not embrace same-sex marriage as a real thing it's charitable and it's kind it takes it does not argue against straw men and against people who don't know what they're talking about. They argue with the best thinkers in the pro-gay marriage movement. It's called What is Marriage? Ryan Anderson, um, Robbie George, and Sharif Gurgis. This is a uh, essay written for Harvard Law Review, and it was so impactful they published it as a book. Um, the Supreme Court case cited this book when there was arguments being made before the Supreme Court. I don't know how you argue with this. It's incredible. And it's and it's kind and loving. Um, I'm just going to do that. Two of the same authors, they did a debate in written form um, with a guy named John Corvino, who is a philosophy professor and a, a gay marriage advocate. And this one's more not about, like, is gay marriage good or bad or accessible or, I mean, or um, not accessible. Um, is it is something we can admit to, whatever, we can allow... This is more about, like, how should the government handle this now? And this, this is really a book about, like, the baker in Colorado. What's his name? Jack Phillips. Phillips. This is about this. 
It's about, okay, now it's been legalized. How do we handle this as a culture? What's the tension between gay rights, quote unquote, and religious liberty? And they write chapters back and forth in response to each other. Fascinating. Love this book. Not an easy read, but I do recommend it. What's the title? Uh, it's called Debating uh, Religious Liberty and Discrimination. So in the purge, Saxon Slaughter, he demands to co-create with people. Not only this too. What does that mean? Unity, what does that mean? Unitive means union. And so so it means it means I love someone. Okay. And like love is desires union, right? Like when you really love someone, and the, the way I'll describe this, Michelle, is like, so in my friendships, and one more argument here about the difference, differences here. Um, whenever I have a love for someone, I want a certain type of union with them. So some of your friends, right, you have a union because you enjoy the same TV shows. So you have a, you have a union of interest. Or you can have people who you have an, a union of um, intellectual interests, or um, you see the world the same way. Um, so you can have, as a human being, you can have a, you have a union of hearts, of minds. That's great. We, you know what we call that? It's, we call it friendship. But certain people can have a union of bodies. And what the church's argument, and that's why this is about sex, is that once you enter into, is it marriage, and so this is, you get to it, friendship, Essentially, people who are pro-LGBT advocates, what they want to do is they want to say, marriage is the same thing as friendship. It's your number one friend. The problem with that is that all of history and logic says otherwise. Marriage is a type of friendship, but it's unique. And what makes it unique? The sex part of it? So, but sex means procreation? Okay, so like, I'm in my 50s. Yep. <laughs> yes. So what makes it different when you can't have kids? Or a couple that's infertile? I mean, so I'm yep. Pregnant. Yep. There's no way Craig and I are Yep. So, so here's the point of this. What? Yeah. <laughs> We're about to get personal here, folks. <laughs> no, but here's the point. Is that, so in um, that type of action, a sexual union between a man and a woman, and they make a big analysis of this in this book, because that's one of the main objections, right, is that, well, what about a couple who's infertile? What if you get married at 25 and you find out that you can't have kids? Does that mean that that marriage is invalid? The answer is no. And the point is this, is that in an, a sexual act between a man and a woman, there might be something that isn't working fully where, or where there's a natural time where you can't have kids anymore. That's radically different from manipulating the sexual act to be something it never was. So that's where then the birth control comes into it because you're manipulating the procreating part of okay. So the Catholic Church is consistent. Okay. And here's what I believe, is that there's a reason that no one questioned this until 2003, is because in the, for the first time in all of human history, first time in all of human history for an entire generation, we told the whole world that sex can just be about this, and it doesn't have to be about this. Sex is just about pleasure. And that's, that's too strong, more than that. But we also know there's a great truth to that. 
So if, all, if we're telling the whole world, hey, children are a nice lifestyle choice, but they're not actually part of what the, sec the nature of the sexual act is about, when we start doing that, it's a lot harder to be like, well, then who cares if it's between two men or two women? What's the difference? And so what we have done, and this goes back to Aristotle and Nietzsche, is we have redefined the sexual act. Right, so if, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. I never, I'm always bad at this. But like, if I, um, if I'm playing my guitar, this is gonna sound, this is gonna sound overly sexual. I don't mean to sound this way. But, but I do have a guitar. It has a hole in it, but I still have it. But if I, if I have my guitar and I plug it into an amp, which I'm not meaning that to sound like the sexual act, but if I'm plugging my guitar into an amp, and let's say the amp's, the amp's not working. Um, that's what the church is saying is like, well, if something went, the amp's not working, it's not putting out sound. That's a lot different from using my guitar as a hammer. One of them, something's, you know, it's, it's no longer in a place where it's going to produce something. That's okay. And in a, in a female cycle, that just happens. That's part of God's design. That's a lot different from us actively manipulating and saying, I want to have as much sex as I possibly can and as much pleasure as I can, and screw this. That's the church's problem. And so, um, let's keep moving here because I'm always slow. So same-sex marriage, what the church is not doing, and one of the lies out there is you can't be happy unless you have a sexual relationship. That's not true. It's just not true. Um, so here's another. Here's a great analogy, and this is part of the best analogy for same-sex marriage. And let's just assume the church does not have a teaching on whether or not this is something inherent in your genes or if it's nature versus nurture. The church doesn't have a teaching on that, and in a certain sense, we don't care. And here's, here's the analogy for this, is that it actually has been proven that people with alcoholism have a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism, usually. So if I'm born and I have a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism, do I get to say, well, I was born this way, I get to get smashed whenever I want? No, of course not. Should we have compassion for someone who has a predisposition towards alcoholism? Love it when you stare at me. <laughs> of course we should. Someone who has a predisposition that way, right? Like, we should love that person. They have a cross I don't have. They have a difficulty in their life I don't have. Does that mean they get to do whatever they want to do? No. And so the church's point is that, is that you, like people who have been born with a predisposition towards same-sex attraction, God bless them. They have something that we should, we should love them. They belong in the church. They're part of the body of Christ if they've been baptized. And they belong here. They are loved everybody as much as, as any one of us. They are called to be saints. But just like me, there are a lot of things I would love to just go do. But that doesn't make them okay. 
All right, have we beat the questions about that? Have I, have I hit that head, that topic over there too much? Just one about uh, not using birth control. Did, you, mm -hmm. did I miss that or did you not catch on that? So the same thing, why? it's because we're redefining sex. And so birth control, what we're doing is we're saying the female body, and more importantly, the sexual act, has those two aspects, procreative and unitive. And in contraception, what we're doing is we're playing God and we're saying, we don't like the way God made the nature of sexuality. And so we're going to redefine it so it no longer has this part to it. And so that's why the church is against that. And let me do this. So the church is for NFP. Did we do that? No. Gosh, you guys have the worst teacher ever. <laughs> um, so St. Thomas Aquinas, and this is a great way to look at it, moral any moral action, not just this one. So you have ends. So in any moral act, you have these three things. You have ends, you have means, you have circumstances. So think of it this way. If I want to help out Children's Hospital, right, I'll take it out of sexual ethics here. I want to help out Children's Hospital. They do amazing things. There are kids who are suffering. I want to help them. Is that a good end? End means a goal. Is that a good goal? Of course it is. Um, Here's the church's whole point, is that maybe th is that there are ways to do that that are good. So maybe the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to go fundraise with my friends. And we're going to go support Children's Hospital. That's how we're going to achieve that goal. But is there a way that I could go for that goal in a bad way? You could rob a bank. Thank you. I, you could rob a bank. All of a sudden, that doesn't look so good, does it? And circumstances, you know, they can't make something either on its own morally good or bad, but they can affect if it's the, the levels kind of. So if I have a niece who's desperately ill, and that's part of the circumstance of why I want to help Children's Hospital, you know, that, that's fine. Um, Here's the point. This is where we get that phrase, the ends don't justify the means. Just because I want to do a good thing doesn't mean I can go rob a bank to do a good thing. This is the church's argument on natural family planning. So natural family planning, right? So say visa. So contraception and natural family planning. All natural family planning is is it says, is it looks at a woman's cycle, and it says a woman's cycle is sometimes fertile and sometimes not fertile. And if you're in a place where you're not able to have kids, all you, and, and you're in a fertile period, all you have to do is not have sex. Now I know that's probably harder than it sounds. I'm a priest, I don't know, <laughs> right? But there's nothing immoral about not having sex. So if you have a couple that's married, Sometimes there's really good reasons not to have kids, aren't there? Sometimes it's because you are emotionally at your wit's end. And if you're emotionally at your wit's end, it's probably not another, a, a good time to bring another child into your family. Guess what? That is a good goal. So you can have a couple on contraception and a couple on natural family planning who have the same goal. They say we're totally stressed out. We can't, we can't handle this right now. That's totally legitimate. 
And so people will oftentimes say to me, they'll say, Father Brian, isn't it the same thing to use natural family planning as it is contraception? And I'm like, no. It's absolutely not. Unless you think it's the same thing to donate a million dollars to charity by robbing a bank and by working hard to just donate. It means neither. In contraception, what you do, put an X there, is you literally manipulate the sexual act and you change its meaning to be something it's not. In natural family planning, all you do is you abstain. That's way harder. Right? It's not easy. And like I've, there's a lot of couples at Lords that practice this. And <clears throat> what they'll tell you is they'll always say it's the harder course. And you'll hate NFP. They're like, and when they're, and I love it when they're honest. They should be honest. Couples on NFP, if they're honest, will tell you it sucks. Women's sexual drive tends to be the strongest when they're fertile. So it's really hard for women to say, I have to deny myself right now. But they'll also tell you it's good for their marriage. Okay, and then let's just say the circumstances are the same. So that's, that's the big difference. Questions, thoughts, rebuttals. Let's go over here first. Yeah. I was just going to ask about, like, what about kind of for folks who don't necessarily care that much about um, abortion or disrupting the purpose of sex, I guess you could say. Like, if we're like, contraception disrupts the intention of sex, which we've established that, but what about for folks who are like, well, I don't really care? Like, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm hearing the question right, but my, my thought is sometimes people don't care about things as much as they should. And I, I think what the church would say is that that's a, that's a failure around understanding sexuality as something not just kind of, and we talked about like, um, not just something fun and like pleasurable, but actually something beautifully sacred. And I just think that's where we're at, honestly. It's like when pornography is a billions upon billions of dollar industry, um, are we surprised that people think that sex is cheap and something that's just not a big deal? Um, so I think we have a lot of work to do to say, actually sex is, the reason it's worth protecting is not because it's bad, but actually because it's good. And it's sacred. And so um, there might be some background work to do that. Uh, does that kind of speak yeah. to it? What do you think about, like, you know, if, if sex is truly like a sacred thing? I think you kind of get that point across. Yeah. Like, what do you think about the analogy I use for that is a wedding dress. And like, this, all my analogies are tacky and weird. But, but I always say, like, imagine, like, like, you know, girls, right, supposedly at least, think about their wedding day for a long time when they're little girls. Supposedly, I don't know. But imagine, right, like, you're so excited about your wedding day that you're in college, you're not dating anybody, but you go with your mom and you pick out a wedding dress. Like, that would just be fun. This is a ridiculous example, of course. But like, I'm just going to go pick out a wedding dress. Let's go do it. And so you go pick out the perfect wedding dress, you go shopping, you find it, you go home, and you're like, Mom, 
I just love this wedding dress so much. I just, I just want to wear it all day. All right, I just want to wear it today. And your mom says, well, honey, that's, that's sweet and everything, but, but we need you to do yard work. We've got a lot of work to do. And you're like, okay, well, I'll just wear my wedding dress today. Now, no one would do that, right? No one would want to get their wedding dress. And this is a bad analogy. I don't mean the dirty connotation. But you don't want to get your wedding dress dirty, not because it's bad, because it's good. And so we've lost a sense of sex as something that's actually meaningful and beautiful and sacred. And what I tell people is the reason the Catholic Church, people think the church is against sex, it's precisely the opposite. The church wants to protect something that's beautiful. And the only things that you have rules around in your life are things that matter. The, the other one I always say is my dad, with his BMW, when I was in high school, he had this M3, I think it was a 1993 M3, and it was this total badass car. And my dad had a lot of rules about his BMW. And that was not because it was bad. Right? It was because it was good. Is that a question here? Well, he, he and I are going through the, the reading again, sort of class and self-education, and the pragmatist in me sort of dug in and really looked at, like, what's the science behind it? And I was really actually really, I think as a guy, I always looked at, like, contraception existed more or less because women couldn't control their, their bodies, but we know a lot more about women's cycles. Yep. And it's, it's far more predictable, I think. And what was really interesting to me was not so much of the success rate of trying to prevent pregnancy, but like when you wanted to get pregnant, it had like exorbitant, like extraordinarily high percentage of, uh, of adjuvant to, to get pregnant. Yep. It's really pretty great, I thought. Yeah, it can help couples. We have a couple that gives a talk here that talks about how they were struggling to get pregnant. And when they went through NFP, they learned about the, the wife's cycle, and they were able to get pregnant, and it blessed them so much. Um, Patrick. I also feel like, going back to your question, though, piggybacking on that, like, yes, but the concept of, like, contraception itself, like, acne, or she could speak more to this than I can, yeah. but there's a lot of solutions with contraception that are outside of, like, the pregnancy realm, but then when we went through NFD, it all, it all of a sudden became, like, a scientific equation. It's like, oh, holy shit, you're on your peak night, like, I'm not ready, but we got to get ready. I was in Las Vegas. Again, we're getting personal here. 100%. But, but I, it's to be totally valid, like totally valid. But to your question of like, yeah, you're not you're not aiming for that. But from the standpoint of like, I hear all these things of like, why it's conscious, like, why you do it, but not understanding the long term ramifications of two years from now, you may be really interested in having kids. Yeah. And now all of a sudden it becomes really important, but then like your decision of like the acne, smell, whatever it is, yeah, went out the window. Impact, it did impact. I, I went to a talk by this woman when I was at SU, University of Catholic Boulder, um, <laughs> and she did a fully scientific talk on why you should not take birth control without bringing God into it at all, just based off of the science. So I've had my, I mean, I've talked to mom and my sister who weren't aware and were on birth control. I'm not trying to be like, if you're on it, you need to freak out. But there's just, like that you're hurt. It's, it's an educational thing to learn what's actually inside of it and what it does to your body. 
that a lot of doctors do not share with their patients. It's yeah. just true. And I think the Catholic Church is there to protect in a lot of ways. There's some cool science out there that is that has no religious no religious practice. Yeah, lots of people are, yeah. are going on NFP because they realize they're putting all these chemicals in the woman's body and they're like, I don't even eat like non organic vegetables. But they're pumping chemicals in their bodies. There are side effects to the drug, but not to abstaining certain parts of the body. Yeah, right? Yeah. You could do it. The church's issue is about if it, and if the pill like helps with a medical issue, which I'm suspicious of, but I'm not a doctor, so whatever. The church's issue is redefinition of sex. So if you're on the pill, let's just say hypothetically, and it really helps with acne, which I'm suspicious of, but I'm not a doctor. If it did that, let's just say it doesn't. And it really works, then the church has no problem with that. Carly. And you say, well, the fun thing is hormonal birth control is not the only hormonal birth control. Right. Um, so I'll just put that out. But I also, I, I'm just curious, like, think about kind of like the more, like, my parents use birth control until they want to have kids, and then they have, like, four kids, and they have this great family, and, like, have never, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just curious, kind of, like, what your argument is, I guess. Like I know it's I know it's anecdotal, I know it's like sure. type, but yeah. Like in terms not of them not knowing or like it's I'm just saying like it's not like you can't have a like healthy sexual relationship and family, um. like even with your baby birth control. Or, or so that like so what that comes to is like what we call pragmatism in philosophy, which means something's good because it works. And that's just a really bad philosophy. Because like you you could do really evil things and have a good consequence. So the, so the church's arguments, and again, it's not to be condemned, like people who grew up in that generation, like, and when I give this talk for kind of marriage retreats, we get people all the time who are like, I can't believe I've never heard this before. And I think that generation, by and large, people don't think on this level, but the church would say, we should think about what is good for a human being, what's good for a marriage, and what is not good for a marriage, and even if you had something Right? Like it's the same thing with like gay marriage. Like when in the, in the gay marriage debate, if we just did it based on results, the media is always trotting out like, this couple has been partners for 47 years and they've raised three children successfully. That does it, the church doesn't wake up and say, oh crap, right? We better rethink this. The church is like, we, we don't, we're not gonna guarantee like a result. We also don't guarantee that if you, the Christianity is like, follow these four rules and you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Right? The argument is like we should live more wise, regardless of the outcome. And I think that, that the rationale there on the separation of the two means of, of sexuality, I, I just don't see how you can argue against. The only argument people ever really make, the only argument you can make is Nietzsche's argument, which is that there is no such thing as nature. And on my marriage prep retreats, when people who have philosophy degrees want to argue with me, at the end of the day, this is the only argument they can make. And that is, and that is the argument. By the end of the night, we usually have to like one in the morning. And at one in the morning, they get to a place where they're like, well, we don't really know what human nature is, which is basically like, I'm done talking to you. <laughs> All right, let's do Luke 24 really quick. No, this is good, and I'm just like, every year I'm like, man, how do we get so, so late in class? Okay, really quick, Luke 24, go read it.
in the next couple of days. Luke 24 is a road to Emmaus. Um, and I just want to walk through this very briefly. We're not going to read it because of time. Um, but here's, but it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And so what happens, so in Luke 24, it's Easter Sunday night. It's the actual day of the resurrection. It's in the evening. And these two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're walking, and they're on the way, and Jesus appears in their midst. But he is disguised from them. They don't know it's him. I was asking... I asked those guys that. I was like, did we do this? Said, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Does everybody remember that? Okay. Okay. No worries. No worries at all. So let's do this. And here's one last one. Okay. Let's do something else. So just, I want to leave you something spiritual. I don't want to go into the vigil and I'm like, yeah. Don't contracept, you know? <laughs> it just like, feels wrong. I'm like, yeah. it's just the wrong ending here before we go to the Easter Vigil. Let me give you this one. So in Matthew, I think it's 24. Let me find this. Um, if anybody has to go, feel free to go. But I just want to spend like five minutes on this. Um, Okay, so let's do this. So, in Luke chapter 20, um, this is so cool. So, it's always fun to leave you with something spiritual, and I hope this helps. So, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus goes to the temple. It's during Holy Week. It's this week of his life, and he's claiming authority. He's claiming to be the Messiah, and the authorities in Jerusalem don't like that. So, he goes to the temple, and in Luke chapter 20, um, he tells the parable of the wicked tenants. He tells a parable about a vineyard, and that's an ancient symbol of Jerusalem and Israel. And so Jesus is in the temple, and he tells this parable about these stewards of a vineyard. The vineyard does not belong to them, but they're bad stewards. And he tells a story, and if you remember this parable, what happens is the father, the owner, is looking for fruit from the vineyard, and he sends servants one by one. Um, he sent another servant. Him they beat, they also beat and treated shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? 
I will send my beloved son, it may be that they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And they cast him out of the vineyard. So what does that relate to? What is Jesus telling that parable about? Himself, right? So the vineyard is Jerusalem. This is Isaiah chapter 5. It's all about that in Psalm 80. And we actually know in Jesus' day, the temple, because the vineyard was a symbol of Israel, the temple had, an, had vines carved into the facade of the building. So Jesus talks here about this vineyard, and the owner sends servants to go collect fruit, which is very similar to Isaiah chapter 5. Um, they, can't, they won't give it to him. So finally he says, this, the, the owner sent his son. And they say, this is the heir, let us kill him and receive his inheritance. So they cast him outside the vineyard. Where does Jesus die? Right? He is the son who is killed outside of Jerusalem. Right? And Jesus tells us, and then he says this, and this is, I always wondered what this meant. He quotes this obscure passage from Psalm 118. He says, Jesus looked at them and said, Have you not, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is so cool. So, here's what this is. In Hebrew, and scholars will talk about this, that underneath the Greek, in Hebrew, there's a word play here. So in Hebrew, so there is a stone that's rejected. Jesus says, have you not heard that the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone? In Hebrew, the word for stone is eben. So when you go to Israel, when we go someday, the place where the Dome of the Rock, this mosque is, which is where the temple used to stand, that rock is called the Eben Shediah. Um, the word for stone is Eben. The word for sun in Hebrew, anybody know what sun is? It's Ben. So for instance, the name Benjamin in Hebrew means the son of my right hand. And you'll hear like, it's like you'll hear like about figures in Israel who are called like Joseph ben Zechariah, right? Which just means Joseph the son of Zechariah. So those words are obviously very close. This is so cool. So what's happening here is Jesus tells, he quotes Psalm 118, and he tells the story, he says, about a stone, a rejected stone, There's a rejected stone that is going to become the cornerstone of the temple, which is a reference to the new temple in Ezra, but we don't have time for that. Ezra and Nehemiah. But um, there's a rejected stone, and there's going to be a rejected son. 
And so there's a stone that became the cornerstone for the temple. And in John chapter 2, right, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. But he spoke about the temple of his body. And here's where this is so cool. When we go to Jerusalem, this is going to blow your mind. So Jesus talks about this rejected stone. When we go to Jerusalem, we'll go to Mount Calvary. Um, and what Mount Calvary is, Mount, you, you always think of it as like, I always thought it was like Green Mountain. You know, because you see these like images online. It's like this, it looks like Green Mountain. It's not like Green Mountain. Mount Calvary is, is just a little hill, very little hill. And what it was, as we know historically, Mount Calvary was a stone quarry in the first century. Uh, and what happened was the Jews in Jerusalem and the Romans, they had taken all of the stone that was useful and they had used it in building projects. And that all that was left, when you go there, and you can go and put your hand on the rock where Jesus was crucified, and there's a giant crack that runs right through the rock. And so all that was left of Mount Calvary was rejected stone. And so Christ, is the rejected son, is crucified on top of a rejected stone. Right outside of Jerusalem. And so Jesus, that, that's what will happen. This is a powerful image. But then, of course, on the third day, he'll become the head of the church. Amazing stuff. All right. Any last questions tonight? Praying for you all. Um, I hope I'll see you all at the liturgies. Uh, class will continue after Easter for two weeks. Every day. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we bless you and praise you. Lord, you are the Son that was rejected, who has become the cornerstone. Lord, may we share in your death. In your humiliation, that we may also share in your resurrection and your vindication. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thanks, Holy Spirit. Patrick. Last thing I would say, in case you don't show up next week and have a preparation, we are going to have, and this is kind of my but for approval, uh, Dr. Leonard Sachs, yes. who wrote the class of parenting, uh, as our third gathering at the Grotto in September. Uh, and I, I really only mention it to encourage you to read it. It's pretty fascinating uh, in his science. He's a doctor out of Pennsylvania. And we're going to fly him out here to do an event in September. And I would totally encourage you to read it and be well-versed in it to then pick his brain in September. Uh, it's kind of exciting news yep. coming out of us of trying to get him out here. So, yep. I don't know.
Collapse of Parenting, Dr. Leonard Sachs. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I will. It's supposed to be a great book. So. It's, it's pretty fascinating, especially everything you talked about tonight. It's pretty inspiring. So read it, and then hopefully you guys can attend for our third gathering at the Grotto in September. Cool. And we will have two more classes. I hope you guys come back after Easter. We still have a lot to cover, obviously. So. See you next time. Well, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>